Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Game Talk. I'm your host, Ahmed Mion. This week, I'm joined by Connor Haynes, digital media manager of the WVU Game Developers Club. Hey, guys. And Michael Dumeyer, a member of the WVU Game Developers Club. Hello. Uh, Game Talk's your podcast where we talk about our greatest passion, video games. Um, this week, we're going to talk about, we're going to start the discussion with Microsoft's Project Scorpio. Now, for those who don't know, Project Scorpio is Microsoft's newest iteration of the Xbox One console. They're touting it as the most powerful console ever made. Um, there was a spec release a few days ago. Um, <clears throat> so according to the release, it's going to have 12 gigabytes of GDDR5 RAM, six teraflops, teraflops of graphical processing power, 326 gigabytes per second of memory bandwidth, a 2.3 gigahertz CPU, um, it's designed for true 4K and HDR gaming. Um, what do you guys think of the Xbox Scorpio? I think uh, I think they're actually going to pull off 4K this time. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to pull off 4K like 60 FPS all the time, but I actually saw like they there are some hardware level optimizations, like stuff you can't really communicate with numbers so much. So like so that game developers can make direct calls to graphics hardware and stuff. And I think that's right. where the real power is going to come out. And I think it's some really cool stuff they're doing. I'm actually excited to see where it goes. I do think it's going to be really expensive, though. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Michael, what about your impressions? I'm very skeptical of the CPU. Like, 2.3 I, gigahertz I was thinking that, yeah. yeah. See, Go ahead. 2.3 isn't really that strong, and they haven't said how many cores it's going to be, so that's a key point. It could not be powerful enough. I don't know. So my uh, comment to that is they're still being bottlenecked by the fact that this is an Xbox One, right? So the fact that, yeah, it's the next console, but it's still an Xbox One. It still needs to be able to play all Xbox One games, and all Scorpio games have to be able to be played on Xbox One. Have they mandated right? that? Yes. Okay. That is a hard ironclad law at this point. Um, so... It's definitely not, it's not going to be a generational leap. It's like a mid-generation refresh, like on the order of like PS4 Pro to PS4, right? Um, so they also made the comment that it was designed to win back developers after Microsoft sort of lost them early in the generation. How do you, what do you guys think of that notion? I mean, just looking <clears throat> at some of the cool things they've said, they've like, simplified the graphics API, I think. Those are the words I should be using for Technical that. Technical speak, yeah. Yeah, like, it looks like they've made it simpler to make stuff show up on a screen, and that's always a good thing. Right. And as a developer, you have a billion other things to worry about than something that... What I'm saying is it should be intuitive to make things show I'm up also, on a screen. I don't remember them losing developers, personally. I, I don't think they lost developers so much as that the sentiment was that it was better, easier to develop on PlayStation than Xbox this generation around? Yeah, I could see that. And I could definitely see some of the new hardware <coughs> stuff they've been doing making that easier. Um, what really interested me a, um, a month or two ago, I was looking, so this isn't Scorpio-specific, but they actually, um, Xbox will send you a developer kit if they like your game idea, which is something... Free I, of yeah, charge? free of charge. If they Two, actually. They'll send you two if they like your idea. So they will, like, help you get a game out on their console, which is something most console developers... See, they're yeah. investing hardcore in developers, which is a very wise 
early investment, I think. I agree. Because I don't think any of the other major... Uh, I don't think Sony's doing that. Nintendo certainly isn't doing that. Nintendo's trying to do better, but Xbox is definitely ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually read a Digital Foundry article where they had uh, one of their guys go check out Forza Horizon 3, I think, um, running on a Scorpio uh, kit, and it was actually hitting 4K, um, like natural 4K, no uh, upscaling. I know the PS4 Pro imp- implements a technique called checkerboard rendering. This was nat- right. native 4K, 60 frames per second, with power to spare. Which is right, yeah. It was like kind of crazy power. to me, yeah. So I'm thinking, is that going to be the norm going forward, or is it just because Forza uh, is a Microsoft first-party game, so it's better optimized to use um, what the Scorpio has to offer? Well, what's really interesting, they didn't change any game code from the Xbox One version to that. I, I read oh, the same. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, in the video I watched, they said they didn't. All <clears throat> they did was plug in 4K assets and raise the resolution, and it was like that much better just for free wow so that's not even tuned up so i'm optimistic about it actually being a 4k console in general i I think it can do it it will it will certainly be more of a 4k machine than the the playstation 4 pro yeah um it will have a uhd blu-ray drive which is always a huge plus ps4 pro didn't have that which really yeah isn't that crazy the xbox one s actually has a uhd drive as well Sony, I guess, was they were cutting costs wherever they could, but um, that's beside the point. Um, so, Michael, uh, could you see yourself? I know you have a an insane gaming PC, right? Could you see yourself possibly transitioning off of that and onto Scorpio, depending on price and uh, the specs? Uh, well, considering that I don't really touch my PS4 already, I think a Scorpio would be a waste of my money. In, in a way, it's like I already have a console sitting around and I don't use it. So, okay, so I guess based off of that, my question is who exactly is this console targeting? So is it just the Xbox fans who don't want to invest in a gaming PC? Because that seems like a pretty small market. I feel like they're shooting for this audience that they, like, really want to exist, which is <laughs> people who are into gaming enough to put in money for a gaming PC but don't want to, like learn some of the technicalities like you, you do have to know some stuff to pc game it's not right. something you can just buy a console so actually yeah i think i have the answer to my own question i mean i consider myself pretty knowledgeable when it comes to pc gaming but i prefer to game on playstation and because i'm so invested in the playstation ecosystem i jumped on the pro when it came out even though i could have built a better pc easily for probably a comparable price right right but so i suppose that is their core market, just the hardcore Xbox guy who is looking for a better way to play and they know will always stick by Xbox. I also imagine, I mean, there's <coughs> going to be a VR component, right? There must be. There has to be. Yeah. I mean, if they're, I mean... I heard uh, rumblings of partnering partnering with Oculus. Yeah. I think that's going to happen. I think that'll be really interesting because, um, you know, PS4 kind of dominates the mid-tier VR right now. They're like the only name. They're the only mid-tier VR, yeah. yeah. And so I'm interested to see what Xbox does there. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think this thing is going to cost based off the specs? I saw some estimates that were like 750 to $800. That, what about you, Michael? I'm in the same range, maybe upwards of 900 Really? See, okay. Yeah. I hear what you guys are saying, 
And I think if Microsoft does this, it's total suicide. Yeah, right. They're going to sell it at a loss. At a huge loss. And not only that, just optically, the PlayStation 4 comes out to the layman, right? This is a mid-generation refresh that provides 4K HDR gaming, right? PS4 Pro comes out at 399 The same place, uh, price the PS4 originally launched at, right? If Microsoft comes out and is like $800, you know, they're going to look at that thing and be like, you know. Yeah, you're right. Go get... Go but away, I mean, you know? There's only so much they can do. I mean, I don't know how cheap they can produce them, but, like, they're not... Even at cost, it's going to be My expensive. estimate is five to $600. Really? Yeah. See, I think I mean, that's a massive loss for them to take. But that's the smartest price point. I don't think... I don't think in 2017 you can get away with selling a console for over $600. That's just... I don't think that could work at all. You're probably right. What did the PS3 launch at? Six hundred dollars, and that's why no one bought a PS3. Yeah, that was yeah. Okay, so yeah, I agree. I think they're gonna have to sell it a lot. This loss. is a tangent. How ridiculous was like? Did you watch the reveal of the PS3? Like no, the I was I was a Nintendo guy back then. They were like in a, living in another world. They were saying things like, "You're gonna have to get a second job to pay for this thing." It was just like that's supposed to be enticing. No way. It's just like yeah, I mean that's I mean they said that on the stage floor. And I'm just like. Oh, the God. Xbox One one was just as bad. Yeah, like, I know. Oh, who uses a gaming console for games? You know, it definitely seems like most major companies have kind of wisened up. They have people yeah. in place to deliver the message how the public wants to hear it. I, I would definitely make the statement that <clears throat> like the gaming industry in general is in a better place now than it was at the very start oh, of this absolutely. console generation. Yeah, um, the rate of growth actually is kind of like not growth but maturity. You know is kind of, it's very impressive and something that I'm proud of, you know. Right, companies like, have, as an industry, you mean? Yeah, and just how companies convey their message, you know. I think the last of the nonsense we saw was Microsoft at the beginning of this generation with uh, their first reveal of the Xbox One and how awful that went. And they're still paying for it now. I know, I still, yeah. I mean, they, they lost. I, I still, they got so yeah. far behind. I mean, that's, po- that's pr- probably why Scorpio exists, because, yes, Xbox One is selling fantastically, but PS4 sales are meteoric in comparison, right? right? And Microsoft's not a company to take back seat. They're going to want to take the initiative. They're going to want to win. Um, so we'll see what they can do it, with the Scorpio. It doesn't help that some of their exclusives are falling to the wayside. Like, I, I the biggest <coughs> Halo fanboys I know hated Halo 5. Like, they just weren't interested. So that's another excellent point. The Scorpio could be a phenomenal machine that pushes the boundaries of console gaming as we know it, but what about the games? Right, you know? yeah. I can't think of any Xbox exclusives I There's care so about. There's so many PS4 games exclusives that have come out that I've loved, right? Uncharted, Horizon, just to name a couple. And there's so many coming up as well, such as uh, Days Gone and um, God of War. Um, with Microsoft... All I hear, and granted, I'm a Sony guy, but all I hear is Forza, Gears, Halo, over and over again. Right. With the occasional, you know, Sunset Overdrive or Quantum Break. But those games didn't review too well and sell too well. So I think they really need an injection of original, hot, new IP to to stay vibrant. I'm going to say on top of that, there's also... Didn't the newest Gears of War come out on PC? Like... That's another thing. They've been X- doing their dual releases, and I think that's a really weird that's business a decision. Horrible business decision because their play anywhere initiative it defeats the purpose of owning an Xbox. Well, I'm not convinced because if if they're trying to attract the the market of people that are serious about games but also don't want to build a PC, 
then there's no reason for them to not also sell their games to the PC market who was never, ever going to buy an Xbox like myself. Like, I mean, they've super increased the chance of me spending $60 on a Gears of War game because they released it on PC. Because there is no chance ever of me buying an Xbox. I promise. I see what you're saying, but the flip side to that argument is the more... So let's say starting today, they just released their their Xbox exclusives are only on Xbox, not PC. The more of those things that come out, the higher the intrinsic value of that gaming box, right? Eventually, you're going to be like, it has these insane games that I can only play there, and that's why I'm going to get that box, you know? But that's going to take time to build up that catalog. I mean, for the PlayStation, <clears throat> you have Bloodborne, Uncharted, you know? Like, these are huge marquee titles that you can't play anywhere else. And I know... I know people that have purchased a PlayStation just for Bloodborne. PC gamers through and through have a PS4 for Bloodborne. There are games like that on this console, but I don't think there are for Microsoft's. Right. I do have a counter for that, though, because, I mean, we were already talking about them selling their console at a loss. They don't want to sell you a console and then only sell you one game because then they're still not making their money back. Right. So if they cannot sell you a console and sell you the game anyway... That seems like the play to me. I, I don't fully understand the console market. So, I'm not going to pretend I no, do. Your logic makes sense. I just I just think they devalue their machine if they do that. You know, it, There's nothing special about it then. I think you know? they're, they're very clearly separating someone who's going to play on PC from someone who's going to play on console. And so they're saying somebody who's going to play on PC is not competition to them. Like, PC gaming is not a co- is not competitive to Xbox gaming, so they're willing to release their product on both. And, like, you see, it, Nier Automata, PS4 game, it also came out on PC. It's, right, it's coming from both sides, and I think, they're, I think they're drawing the line, and they're saying, all right, we're not competition with you anymore. It's, it, We'd rather have those games. It sales. comes way f- more from Xbox's side than Sony's side. I, I yeah, mean, I don't right. think there's I mean, a single Xbox One exclusive at all. Like, I think that that's... Halo a, 5. Halo 5 is also on PC. I'm it is sure. not. Are you sure? Because I'd have bought it. It's not. It, the, okay. the Forge. The Forge mode is on PC. The actual game is not. All right. So, <clears throat> I don't know. I still think that in order to create a sort of mystique around your product, that it would be wisest for them to have Xbox exclusives. But it might not be wisest in the financial sense, as I mean, you said. I mean, they're still saying... In the short-term financial They still sense. call them an Xbox exclusive. Just like Nier Automata is still mm-hmm. called a PS4 exclusive. Right. And then they're just like, oh, but it's also on PC at right. the end. Because, like, I mean, I'm not going to buy a cons- I'm not gonna buy a PS4 just for Bloodborne, and I'm not going to buy an Xbox just for Halo, because right. I play all my games on my PC, and they're not going to convince me to buy what I think is not going to be as good a gaming experience. So let me pose a question to the both of you. If Microsoft comes out this E3 and just hits a like a home run with game after game after game, some new IP, some beloved old IP, would that be enough to sway you to consider a Scorpio? Absolutely not. Okay. Well, because there is no beloved old IP that they have to bring me back. Well, you personally, right? Right. You're yeah. you're a PC gamer pretty much through in, PC and Nintendo through and through. What about you, Michael? Uh, <laughs> unless they surprisingly announce a new Banjo Kazooie game, I will be all over that. Yeah, I, I'm not <laughs> yeah. gonna touch Scorpio. That's an excellent point. If they were like Banjo Kazooie only on Scorpio, I'm just I'll be like, give me twenty. I will play that. 
But yeah, I guess we're kind of at a wait and see on Scorpio, you know. Um, they've made the hardware announcement, now we need to know about the games. And we'll see where it goes from there. Now, I said I would never buy one. I could, in the future, see myself developing for one. Okay. I, I could absolutely see that. All right. So that kind of segues nicely into our second topic, game development. So all three of us here and members of our club are game developers in some capacity. We've all contributed to the game. We've all made a game. Um, I kind of want to just talk about our personal experiences with game development as well as sort of the things people might not know um, that game development entails. Right. I'm going to say, I think before we start, we should say what we consider our specialty in game development. Okay, sure. You go first. So um, I'm a programmer through and through, um, but I also usually end up taking on some form of leadership when I do a game. <laughs> I feel like, would you would you agree with that? Yeah. I think for game jams. Yeah. But yeah, I'm mostly a programmer. I, I like getting dirty in the code, you know, get all up in there. It's... I like to I, I like to play with numbers. I all like right. to, that that sort of thing. That like got kind of got a little weird there, but yeah, I well, see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, I I didn't mean to, but I was <laughs> I was halfway there. You know, it's whatever. But um, so you know, I mean, that can get tiring and all, but it's what I like to do. No, for sure. Uh, what about you, Michael? I consider myself like a sound design slash audio design slash just about anything regarding audio. I'll do it. So, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, um, just to sort of back him up on that, um, w- the three of us actually worked on a game recently, um, still in development, unfortunately, but um, th- the sounds Michael made for that are just terrifying yeah, and I- I would will say make you fear the darkness. And I would go as far as to <coughs> say beautiful soundscape. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, it was very good. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a very valuable skill you bring. I personally, um, I dabble in a bunch of things. I like taking on a leadership role, I like programming, and I like composing music for games. So, uh, Michael's more of an audio engineer, but I'm more of, like, uh, composing a soundtrack, that sort of thing. Um, so, Connor, um, I know you probably have more to say on this topic than most of us. Um, what is game development to you? Because I know that's, you, you, you go around claiming that it's your passion. So, tell us why <laughs> it's your passion. It, it is my passion. Um... So I've always, um, I don't know, I guess I would have considered myself a, um, a struggling artist before now or a, uh, a tortured, tragic, tortured, tor- tortured artist, that's, that's what I'm looking, looking for. for, because I desperately wanted to be an artist and have been bad at every artistic venture I've ever gone on. And then it's suddenly, a good thing video games are art. <laughs> yeah, really. And so I found, you know, I can program, I can make games, and I can do something that looks cool and, like, evokes emotion and stuff, right. and it's... So that's really important to me. It's an art that I can actually do, and, you know, it's multidisciplinary. Is that? Yeah, that's it is. the word for it that. It totally yeah. is. And, uh, yeah, and it's pretty important to me. I uh, I like taking on – I'm trying to move on to more bigger, longer-term projects and stuff right now. Yeah. So – and that comes with its own whole bag of worms, you know. Of course. I, uh, you know, because you're not going to be passionate about a project the entire time you're exactly. working on it. Exactly. Uh, it's definitely, it becomes discipline instead of right. passion. But um, it comes and goes, I've noticed. Because, like, I've been on the downside of it for the past couple months, I'd say, working on my current project. And uh, I'm hitting an upswing right now. Me and uh, me and my uh, partner, Gabby, have been 
getting real into it these past few days. Yeah, I mean, I think for any creative, that's normal, right? If you were constantly on, you'd be burned out so quickly, right? You have right. to take those creative surges and capitalize on them. Um, so what would you say is your favorite like part of game development? Because for those who don't know, game development is a very extensive process. You know, you start out with pre-production where it's mostly just ideas floating around. Um, then you go into production, alpha, beta, and then the, kind of the final build of the game. So, It's absolutely the very beginning. Like, I, I would agree yeah, with that. Cobbling together ideas and then <clears throat> building a prototype. Once you get past that, I, 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 just, I feel like most game developers are passionate all the way through that first prototype of every game they make. And then you, got, you have to buckle down and build content. Like, I, I enjoy building features and mechanics and stuff like that. When you actually sit me down to make levels, that's when you start to lose me. Right. No, I am absolutely there with you. Just the creative fireworks that happen at the beginning of that process. Um, and if you grab and hold on to an idea you're passionate of, uh, enough about, it, it carries through like the entire cycle of development, I've discovered. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I was just going to say that Recently, um, I participated in a game jam, well not recently, maybe like a few months ago at this point. It was my first game jam, and ideas were flying around left and right. And our final product ended up being something completely unrelated to the idea we first pitched. But I don't think we could have gotten to that final product without seriously considering that first project we were going to do. So, even if you have ideas that don't pan out, they inform the ideas that do. Right, and it's a very it's a very adaptive process the whole way through. I, I know you're talking about a game jam, which is for those that don't know, it's a you make a game in 48 hours, planning right. and all. Um, my current project, Perspectrum, I've been working on almost a year now, <coughs> and I'd say it, it's adapted a lot. I mean, at one point, we decided we wanted to do almost just a Mega Man clone because we, we were so upset yeah. about Mighty Number no. Nine yeah. being awful, and then I I was working on that. And I just decided I hated every part of it. And I walked away from the game for more than a month. And uh, I came back and I was just like, oh, well, if I tear out all this stuff I blatantly stole from Mega Man, suddenly it's an okay game again. Right. So, Yeah, sometimes yeah. you have to listen to what your game is telling you. Right, you really do. Yeah. And, yeah. So, Michael uh, what, and Connor, um, what are your least favorite aspects of game development? Because um, it's not a very glamorous thing to do. It's a very arduous, hard thing to do. That's why not many people do it. Um, so, yeah, what are the most challenging aspects of game development? Michael, would you like to go first? Yeah, you can go. Okay. I, um, it's definitely content. Like, I love making mechanics and stuff, but I, I'm, at, I'm at that point right now in Perspectrum. I have to sit down and actually build these levels, and it's just not... It's so difficult for me to just sit down and come up with an interesting puzzle or even like an interesting aesthetic for a level. I find it really difficult and I don't enjoy that part very much. For me, I would say after the prototype is built and actually polishing and implementing, like you said, levels, that's definitely the toughest part for me as well because the creative process is pretty much done at that point. It's just the sort of technical process where you implement your ideas, right? And that's always less exciting unless you're a, te a tech junkie, right? right? But for me, I would say that um, 
Yeah, implementing a game, like squashing bugs, building levels, polishing code, that's definitely where my interest starts to wane. But as an aspiring game developer developer myself, you just kind of got to get over that, you know? That's part of the high and low cycle. See, I'd rather, I'd honestly, (coughs) I prefer chasing bugs to building levels. Yeah. And and that's awful, but I think the reason is um, a level is subjective, I think. I can look at code at the end of the day and objectively tell you whether or not I did a good job writing it. Mm-hmm. But a level, I'm not going to know until I have 100 people play it and tell me whether or not they liked it. Right. So QA testing's a, another big deal that right. it's, it's hard that, to do when you're in a small community. Right, yeah. It's it's nice to have uh, the club and everything. For right. That. Um, let's kind of transition from... Oh, Michael, do you have something to say? I, I haven't said my least favorite part, but... Like, my least favorite part is, like, the finishing part. Like, that crunch time at the end of, say, like, a game jam. Where you're oh, just yeah. panicking. Yeah, those can get very stressful. It's it's always the worst part. Like, every other part is enjoyable since I can just sit down and crank out sound effects at any point of the day. Right, yeah. I definitely agree with you. Crunch time. And that's not just in game jams. That's, that's industry-wide. That's game development in general, yeah. I mean, there, there are games that never crunch. They exist. Do they? I have no, not I, heard of them. I definitely, I looked it up because I was like, well, if this is a reality that I'm going to have to live with, I will not go into game development. Yeah. And there there are. There are studios that do not crunch. You can not crunch. You just have to, you have to be very careful to avoid it. It's a necessary evil in a lot of cases. To me, I feel like it's an intrinsic part of game development. So if you found a studio that doesn't do crunch, that's good for you. And for those who are kind of unfamiliar with what we're talking about, crunches just refers to the last period of game development where, like, 80% of the work gets put in, right? So the game pretty much gets built and is fun at the end, whereas in the beginning stages, despite them being much longer, uh, there isn't a tangible product there. It's just being built. Um, I kind of wanted to broaden to, like, the AAA, maybe... Triple I, as you mentioned last time, um, game development scene and what game development is like for like those big companies. I know a typical dev cycle for a triple A game is 18 to 36 months, and that's a huge chunk of time, right? Every time I beat one of these triple A games, there's always a section in the credits that say like babies born during production, and there's it's like a <laughs> list of like a hundred babies, and I'm just like, wow, like these people, like they've spent a good chunk of their lives on this, you know? Right, yeah, I, um, and I actually, that scares me, right? Because, like... What if you get on a bad project? And yeah, you just exactly. Waste and you waste four years of your life. Yeah, yeah, I mean, how many four-year chunks of your life do you have? <laughs> not it's not that many. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's definitely something I think about a lot. Um, right. And it's, you know, it's another reason it bothers me so much. I've been working on Perspectrum for a year, although I do like that game. But, you know, and I totally get it, how it drags on like that, because, like, there's a lot of waste, I would say, in game development. Like... You'll think of something, and it seems like a good idea, and you'll spend maybe as long as a month building it and working on it and putting it in your game, and then you're like, oh, I was wrong. But that's just the nature of the beast. You can't know unless you try it. Yeah. Right? It definitely is, yeah. So um, that's why I'm sure – I know the three of us have heard it, but there's a philosophy called fail faster. Yeah, right. And uh, that's basically as quickly as you can – get something that exists so that so you, you can know see it doesn't work that it doesn't right. work yeah but that's hard too i was um i was listening to a gdc talk just yesterday about fable right 
And apparently they spent six months working on a combat, uh, maybe six months is a number I just pulled out of my head. But um, A long time. A long time working on a combat system. And the guy was saying, yeah, we hated it and we threw it out. But then we built a second one and realized, oh, that first one was probably okay. We just hadn't finished it yet. Yeah. And like... That sucks, yeah, right? I, it's but, it's such a messy process, <laughs> and that's you know? Fable. That's a big game, I mean. right? Um, and apparently, that game itself was not ever fun until the very end. I and a lot of games are like yeah, that, and people love that game. I think I've never played it. The original Fable, yeah, it's pretty beloved. Um, but I was just getting uh, kind of driving um, the fact that game development is not a glamorous thing. You no, know? it's a very hard, arduous thing that you dedicate pretty much your life to, right? Um, so you really have to be passionate about it if you're going to seriously pursue it. Right, yeah, and it, it makes me anxious sometimes uh, right. thinking about it because I, I actually want to pursue a career, I think. I've decided recently that's what I'm going to yeah, do. Yeah, I think out of all of us, I could see you m- more than the rest of us being a game developer. Um, but you just have to keep in mind, like, I, I've kn- I know, not personally, but I've heard of game developers that have, sort of ruin their personal lives just because their their professional lives ate up so much of their time. Right. So. I've I've heard horror stories like that as well. I've also heard um this is kinda on the same track. Yeah. A lot of indie studios I read sorry, I read about a lot of indie studios that um they don't spend a, they spend a fraction of their time actually working on their game. And they spend all this time marketing and working with PR and stuff. And that scares me because I'm I don't see myself being good at those things. <clears throat> That's certainly very important, you know. You need people to buy your game to get funding for your next game. Right, yeah. I have no idea. I've been I've been struggling with that in perspective. I don't know how to find people to play it. And I uh I mean I there are a couple of things I'm not ready to do yet, like go to the press and get YouTubers. Right. But um I'm looking at like you know, getting Twitter followers and stuff and I just don't know how to do it. It's tough. Yeah, I mean And that's a very huge and real part of game development. You know, you see job postings all the time for, like, social media experts and social media, media managers. You know, that sort of thing is so important in today's world, you know. Right, it really is. To I get mean, your name out there. And you can see the people who are, like, really good at it, like the Sonic the Hedgehog Twitter. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Right. Wendy's is on point recently, too. Okay. I'll just take your word on that one. <laughs> they are. I promise. Um, any concluding th- thoughts? It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. But it's, Don't it's do it really, unless you're passionate about it. Yeah, it's very rewarding, though. So do yeah, do it if you are passionate about yeah, it. Yeah, just and anyone can learn it. I don't. I don't care. Like if you can't code, I don't care if you can't draw or anything like that. You can absolutely learn to yeah. game develop. Less than it's two, just not easy. Less than two years ago, I had never programmed in my life, and I had never made a game before. And now I've almost made three. I want to say almost three. Yeah. So anyone can do it. Um, if you're passionate about it, take the plunge and do it. Um, our next topic is going to be narrative in games. So, games are in an interesting place where they don't have, like, the classic story. Like, you can point to films like The Godfather and be like, oh, this is one of the greatest stories of all time. Um, I don't think at, right now you can point to a game and say some uh, something similar. But I, I disagree. I think, I think recently some instant classics have come out that, like, really say a lot about narrative in games. No, well, yeah, no, I don't get me wrong. I love narrative in games. I just don't think they're at a level yet comparable to books or movies. I See, would I, I, I would say that. I will say, though, that um, narrative in games um, is evolving very rapidly. And 
I love how developers are using the the medium of video games to tell stories in a way that can't be told through TV, books, or movies. Right, I agree. I um, I'm gonna throw a little bit of shade right here. Okay. Uh, I, there's some of my favorite games, and there's some of your okay. favorite games too. But like Uncharted and The Last of Us, you're treading on some. Those narratives are not good eyes. for gaming. I don't think they are. They're not bad stories, but they don't do anything interesting because they're a game. So I think I see what you're saying. They had a cool story they wanted to tell, but they could have just as easily made a movie or a TV series and told the yeah, same story is what you're yeah, saying. That's what I'm right. saying. No, I totally understand that argument. Um, on the uh, uh, To co- sort of counter that argument, how cool is it, though, that, yeah, that story can be conveyed through another medium, but through the medium of video games, you're in the story. You're S- interacting with it firsthand, and you're controlling the story. See, I'm going to argue against that as well though sure because uh have you ever heard the term ludonarrative dissonance yeah it's um so for our listeners i'm going to describe it it's when the narrative of the game and the mechanics of the game disagree like when nathan drake slaughters thousands and thousands of minorities yeah just slaughters people (laughs) and then like we're supposed to say that he's an infallible good guy at the end right and i think naughty dog kind of treaded you know around that carefully in the second game i believe the antagonist actually calls you out on it at some point. Yeah, at the end of the game, and he it's, does. It's like a Band-Aid, kind of. Right. Um, but, yeah, that's definitely a hurdle that game development has to, like, just in general has to cross. Otherwise, you just kind of have to dissociate those two things in your brain, you know? Right. Just and like, yeah, how I play this game by killing many people does not make sense with the lore and the characters of the game, but that's okay because that's what the gameplay is. Right, and I, I think I'm, I'm getting more and more proud of the industry here recently because we're actually moving away, I feel like, from these extremely violent games like um, like Undertale, for instance. I'm just going to throw that one out there. Right. Its narrative and its mechanics are deeply intertwined. Like, right. In a, in a very intelligent way, like befriending the monsters or fighting them that is the narrative, and that is the gameplay. Like, they're just, they're one and the same. And I think we're seeing a trend of solely narrative-based games as well. I mean, um, are you guys familiar with Telltale Games? I am. So they, their games are pretty much just stories, you know? There's no gameplay to be had, but they're still, quote-unquote, video games. Right. right, and then there's also things like Gone Home, where the gameplay exists, but it's very light. But it's... at the same time the best way to convey that story would be through a game. Right, Because exactly. you're actually exploring this abandoned house, finding clues as to what happened. You can't get the same effect reading about it or right. watching it. You I know, agree. You're actually looking around in it. And that Gone Home is one of my favorite games. I, right. Because I just, I don't know, it just did something only games can do in my mind. And it also, like, it takes that immersion and actually uses it and things like that. Yeah, I absolutely, so I, I do enjoy the Uncharted's The Last of Us, right? I enjoy those games where you experience a story, um, even if the gameplay might not be completely cognitively in line with the story. But I definitely agree that moving towards a trend of um, stories that are told effectively while implementing the appropriate gameplay would only serve to create a better experience. Right. I um, I'm going to talk about Nier Automata. Here in a minute when we get spoilers? to the games we've been playing. Um, no, no okay, spoilers okay. right here. Well, very, very light spoilers. I wouldn't say they matter. All right, sweet. Um, so you play as an android in that game. Mm-hmm. And um, there's basically the game 
like, it really is dedicated to the fact that you're an Android. Like, you can uninstall your OS, and that's an option you have, and it just kills you. Like, that is the end of the game. That's pretty incredible. And throughout the game, several times, you get into some dangerous situations, and the characters talk about, like, oh, well, we're backed up. It's going to be okay. But then at the same time, we do have to die. Like, we have to experience death. Like, I really need you know, to play this game. It's it's yeah. really interesting. It's um, I yeah, I would definitely recommend it. And it, I'm not gonna say why, but it's it does not have the same ludo narrative dissonance that something like Uncharted has, despite being a violent game. It that is part of the narrative. So one of my favorite narrative um, narratives in games is The Last of Us, and that game does not have any ludo narrative dissonance dissonance because all the killing you do in that game is completely justified and makes sense because of the state of that world, um. I, and the gameplay is very, very similar to Uncharted, but the fact that The Last of Us is set in this post-apocalyptic world where everyone's out to get you, there are zombies that'll kill you at first glance, and people who are selfish and will kill you for, you know, your shoes or whatever. Having an environment like that in which killing is the main, or like shooting is the main gameplay mechanic, that makes total sense and serves the story. And, and of course, The Last of Us on its own, is a brilliant, brilliant story. But I think it's only elevated because the gameplay makes complete sense within that story. Right, and I also don't feel like, um, in all of The Last of Us story, I don't feel like they tried to make the protagonist look like a hero, so to speak. Oh, absolutely not. He was a guy yeah. who did what he had to do. And and we're not going yeah. to spoil anything, but by the end of the game, you learn he's a very, very selfish man. Right. Right? Yeah. He, um, yeah. I mean, several times throughout the game, yeah. he does some very selfish things. Um. So let's just kind of jump off of that. What are your uh, some of your favorite narratives in games? I'll start with you, Michael. So, like, I love games where I create my own narrative. I see. Maybe that's why I get drawn into Civ and, like, Paradox Grand Strategies all the time. And you're always talking about Dwarf Fortress. Yeah. It's like, ooh, I'm this base-faring race. Let me create my own narrative where I turn into robots and some forgotten empire translates my language to complain to me about the fact that I'm not robots. And I, and I think that's very important because games are the only games medium. allow you to yeah. do that as well. Yeah. Games are going to sit you down and make you make your own narrative, and that's that's huge. Yeah, I think that's very important as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that was an entire facet I didn't even consider of that. Yeah, I mean, there's also um, if you don't mind me cutting into your a little bit. Um, Dark Souls, Dark Souls. Um, there is a narrative in Dark Souls, and it oh, is, absolutely, it's concrete and it's there. It's one of the most grandiose, convoluted narratives I've ever seen. Well, and there's also a lot of um, intentional ambiguity. Oh, absolutely. Because they want to they want to partially put words in your mouth, but you are making the narrative in Dark Souls. It's like you they... You piece it together. They present to you a thousand-year-old legend, and, be, and they're kind of like, parts of this are true, parts of it are false, make of it what you will, you know? Right, and like, yeah. I mean, there's... With that ambiguity, I actually read, um... What's his name? Um, Hidetaka Miyazaki. Right, yeah. He would read books, but his English wasn't great when right. he was a child. And so he wanted to recreate his need to fill in the blanks because he couldn't read these stories completely. What a brilliant right. idea. Yeah. Yeah. And he, yeah, and I think gaming is one of... I mean, you could sort of do it in a movie, but in a movie, you can't put optional... Stuff like you, you decided right. what someone's gonna view. I mean, you could it'd just be a weird movie, you yeah. Know? But like in a game, press A to see this scene, press B to see this. In a game, you can have an entirely optional like you don't have to read all the dial like all the hidden dialogue and stuff. You don't right. have to explore all the. It's areas there for those who are curious, curious enough to seek it out. Right, which creates a sort of like 
reward narrative as well. Yeah, like, it creates a reward system. Mm-hmm. You're more informed about what you're playing if you're if you actively seek it out. Right. Which which that in itself creates so many layers to the narrative of a game. You could have like the surface level narrative and then if you dig deeper you could find like lore and history and if you dig even deeper you can find like specific character stuff. So many games do that, you know. And I think that's another um, important strength that um, narrative has in when talking about games and that it's it's multi-layered in the sense that you could experience it on a surface level or you could dive as deep as you want and learn as much as you want. Right. And I think that's very important uh, for us to acknowledge in our tool set. Um, so we asked Michael, what about you, Connor? Uh, what's your favorite? I think I'm going to have to go Undertale, I think. Um, I can't. So you'll spoil. It's a huge spoiler as to why, right? Huh? If I... Yeah, just go ahead. I mean, it just makes... I'm not going to... I'm not going to say what... I mean, because I think... Undertale has more than one ending. I'm going to... That's... I don't think that's a spoiler. But I think all of them are really good. And I think they, you know, they evoke emotion, not just because of the characters in this game, but also because of your actions Because of the gameplay. Yeah. Your gameplay has an effect on the story that is palpable. Like, it's... it's very real. You you decide who lives and who dies in Undertale, and like, they they call you out on it in a way that is very emotionally evocative. And I think it's beautiful, and it made me feel things. <laughs> it made you feel things. You brought up a great point in that you decide who lives and dies, right? So, branching storylines has sort of become a staple in their uh, video game narratives, right? Right. Sometimes so, done well, sometimes not. Right. But just the the fact that the option is there for it really gives the sense that you're shaping the outcome of whatever you're involved in, which is a super important thing for investment and immersion, I think. Right. And then I would have to chase Undertale with Dark Souls, probably. Yeah. All right. Um, as always, we round off the podcast uh, just talking about what we've been playing. Um, Michael, let's start with you. What have you been playing recently? And tell us a little bit about it. Well, Ukulele just launched today. It's right, really, I've been I've yeah. been playing a bit of ukulele as well. Uh, what do you like about it? Uh, it's just it really brings back that nostalgia of like Banjo Kazooie and Donkey Kong sixty four that I played as a kid, in a modern form that I can actually run at sixty frames per second at ten eighty p. Right, um, it really does seem to have the same charm, uh, based off the hours so I've played. It has the same terrible puns. It has the same, you know insufferable squeaks in place of dialogue, and I love it because it totally harkens back to one of my favorite games as a child, Banjo-Kazooie. Um, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, and even the humor is still, like, the dir- the, the really, like, dad humor, the really <laughs> dad dirty jokes and everything. It's all there. Um, ha- do you have anything to say about ukulele? So, uh, I've never played ukulele, and I've never played Banjo-Kazooie. Right. Um, but I know that Banjo-Kazooie had its faults, right? I think I think even the biggest fans of it will say that. And uh, I would be interested in how you think, like, ukulele is an opportunity to address those, and I'm interested in how it did. So just based off what I've played so far, I don't think it's addressed those at all. It li- <laughs> what? It hasn't addressed them. Oh, no, not even a little. It literally is just Banjo-Kazooie. Wow. Again, yeah. And I'm okay with that. I want to get another Banjo-Kazooie game, like, what, 15 years later. Um... And it is, so it was a crowdfunded game, right? So it's lacking some of the polish that Banjo-Kazooie and 2E had because those were AAA titles at the time. Um, so there's just a little bit of, 
a little bit of polish that could have taken the game up a, a level, but that said, I'm still enjoying it very much. It's still a huge nostalgia trip. Reminds me of when I was in like first grade playing Banjo Kazooie, calling my friends to talk about like how we got past like a certain puzzle, and yeah, I think it's great. You have any concluding thoughts on ukulele? Uh, not really. I think we've put it all out there. All right. Uh, you were a backer, right? Are you are, are you glad you backed it? <laughs> I'm actually really glad I backed it. Okay, I think that says it all, though. Yeah, I am too. From what I've seen, I'm totally glad with what I've gotten. Um, what about you, Connor? What have you been playing? I've been playing uh, Nier Automata. I was talking about it a minute ago. Yeah. Um, it's really good. I So, I uh, this is the first AAA game I've bought in a pretty long time. I think it's like Grand Theft Auto V. But I just, I just got a job, and I was like, hey, I want this. So... I did. The and power I, of money. Yeah, I know. I don't regret it at all. I've uh, I've enjoyed it a ton. I had no idea what it would be going in. Uh, it's very Japanese. Like I've. Uh, oh really? The the title Near Automata didn't give it away. No, it uh, it didn't. Honestly. Oh well. I, it's been a while. I don't play a ton of Japanese games because like, Dark Souls is Japanese, but it's, it feels pretty Western it, yeah, playing it, right? Of course. So Near Automata, I, I would have trouble even saying what genre it's in. Um, so it's uh, like a, it's a platinum it's, game. It's an action game, right? So it's an action beat 'em up, but it has some JRPG elements to it. Like okay. You do level up, and there are like buffs you can buy, and you buy weapons and stuff. Mm-hmm. And your character is lightly customizable. <clears throat> but anyway, you uh, you play as these, you play as this android, and you're running around, and you fight machines, which are not what androids are. They're so totally j- machines, like so, robots without consciousness, yeah, whereas right. you have well, consciousness. Allegedly without consciousness. Okay. The lines get a little blurry in the first hour of the game. <coughs> you know, they do talk and stuff, and right. um, yeah, and it um, I don't know. It tackles a lot of things. I think it's kind of trying to like tackle morality of war and stuff. I've heard and the gameplay is just like sublime. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I'm not good at beat 'em ups. I'm not gonna mm-hmm. or a- action adventure like that kind of thing. Right. But I'm I'm getting there. And I'm really enjoying it. It uh, it my first entire playthrough, I'd say I was bad, but I'm starting. Oh, you've already beaten it. Um, so it's weird. Okay. I've seen credits. I'll say that. All right. So there's more than one ending. Yeah, like I was expecting to go into like a new game plus, but it drops me in, and I'm playing as a different character. Interesting. And like following the same story, but from their perspective. I also hear that the music in that game is pretty. Oh my god! It's ridiculous. Like. Yeah, I can't even explain it. It's not in English, most of, yeah, so... But it still creates that yeah. affect, right? Like, yeah, it's like, they're not saying words I understand, but, but I beautiful. know what they're telling yeah. me, you know? <laughs> you can like, feel the message, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely, yeah, I would give it, uh, I would give it a 9 out of 10, maybe 9.5. I mean, it's got like a 90-something on Metacritic, right? Yeah, it's, it's, so it's good. Yeah. And it its narrative is amazing as right. well, I was talking about it's, that. It's definitely one of those games that's on my list of... And it's, I want. Something it does that's really interesting, um, its side quests are important to the plot. Like, it's not... You see games doing that more and more. Like The Witcher, you know, The Witcher's side quests uh, fed into the plot. It was throwing me... Horizon as well. Early on, early game, they throw you on a couple fetch quests and stuff. But you do two of those, (laughs) and then the protagonist is like, what are you doing? Why are you sending someone as powerful as me, like, on these fetch quests? Stop it. Give me real work. Mm-hmm. And then they do. They give you real work. And then sometimes you think you're going out on a fetch quest, and then something gargantuan happens. And yeah, yeah and you get in this huge fight, and it's just really interesting. And I, even when, even if I get a quest I think is going to be boring, I'm going to do it because they haven't failed me yet. Nice. So. Yeah, it sounds pretty engrossing. 
Um, and it's also definitely just incredibly something I'm interested in. Definitely, definitely something I'm interested in. And it in. like it also um. This is just a smaller side point, but uh, mm-hmm. I've never played a game where I thought that the camera work was interesting. But I actually, okay. like, I was playing this, and the camera was moving and framing things, and I actually noticed that, like, oh, that's really cool what they were doing. Because, like, the game kind of fluidly switches between a couple different play styles. Like, sometimes it's a side-scroller. Right. Sometimes it's, like, third-person action fighting. And sometimes it's, like, a top-down shoot them up almost. And the camera makes that make sense. Yeah, like very fluidly. And the controls are such that it's not confusing. Like the controls, they never tell you the controls for the different game modes and stuff. They just... They just tell you the controls once. Naturally switch from one style to another. Right, and it's okay. obvious. Yeah, and it's it's really good. That's that's the only thing I have to say about it is they did a good job. Nice. It only confused me once, and they did it like 30 times. So it was okay. okay. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's a pretty good success That's better rate. than most games, right? Yeah. Um, I've been playing a game called Dragon Age Origins lately. Um, oh gosh, I want to say it came out a little under a decade ago at this point. Really? I I think I remember I it coming out, that. but that feels like really. I think it came out. I'm, I'm gonna look it up real quick. Yeah, please do, Michael. You have anything? I else? think it came out after Mass Effect because it, was, it did. It You're was, right. Yeah, You're absolutely Mass Effect right. just turns a decade this. This, uh, so year. yeah, a little bit under a decade sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't need it's to look a, it up. Though. It's it's a Bioware RPG. Um, it's as it's your standard fair fantasy, right? So you're a hero, last of an ancient order called the Grey Wardens. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Um, I know. And you're um, you're conscripted. You're conscripted to sort of fight this apocalyptic event called the Blight. Um, and the only way the Blight can be stopped is by slaying the Arch Demon, right? Um, who controls an army of Darkspawn. Um, so it's a very standard, your standard fair RPG. Um, you go on side quests, quests, explore these areas. You have uh, party members that you recruit along the way. And actually, I think the, the heart of the game is in these party members because you get to talk to them, talk to them and sort of get to see what makes them tick. And um, once you get to know them well enough, go on quests for them and sort of, you know, see what is just sort of see what their whole story was about. And I think that's the strength of Bioware games in general, just strong character work and um, how you build relationships with your party. Um, my friend actually um, started playing it. Uh, shout out to Joy Wong. Uh, she asked me to play it with her, and I was like, okay, why not? I want to get the platinum trophy in this game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I, and, yeah, so I started playing it again, and I, forgot, I had forgotten um, how much I love the game, and also how much, uh, and I also realized how dated it is as well. Uh, there are things in that game that will not hold up today, uh, such as the fact that there's no mini-map, so in order to see an objective, you have to open up your entire map, and, <laughs> and, and yeah, just like little things like that, like symptoms of the 2000s, I'll call it, you know? Yeah. But the heart of the game is still there. It's still a classic in my mind. Um, very long game, I would say sixty plus hours. Really, at least. Um, you, you, you've played it, right, Michael? Do you have any thoughts on it? I've played it all the way through Awakening. Awakening's a really good DLC too, and it, the whole core of the game is, as you said, the characters, and the fact that you actually have to emphasize their role. You have to build them in a certain skill set, or else you're gonna, you're gonna lose. If you have three people that are glass cannons, it's over. 
you can't really do much. You need right. someone who can take it. That's an excellent point that I forgot to mention. Um, you're you have four people in the party, including yourself, and you have to make sure your composition is such that uh, all your bases are covered. Like you need a tank, you need a ranged fighter, and you need someone um, who's a um, close combat like warrior type. So you mix and match those to have an ideal party type. Make sure all your bases are covered. You can actually pause combat at any time and. Uh, tell your characters to move somewhere or execute a certain skill and then resume combat and see how all that plays out and pause it again. So it's a very sort of strategic game. Uh, Connor, you look like you want to say something? Where would you say the difficulty is on it? Because, like, I'm bad at this sort of thing. Um, it can get pretty hard. Um, I beat, I beat, the first time I played it, I beat it on normal. And the second playthrough I had, I did, like, about half of it on hard, and there were definitely times I was, like, slamming my, slamming my head against the table. Um... But it does have a casual mode if you're if you're uh, into that yeah. sort of well, thing. Well, I am uh, um, in, in that <clears throat> genre. But yeah, it's a it's it's quite a challenging game. I won't lie. Um, real quick, how do you guys feel about casual modes? Just since since it came up, I think I think they need to exist because I don't always have time to beat my head against the wall over and over again. And if I want to experience the story of a game, or you just experience a game. I liked having that option where I can just turn it down and get through an area. That being said, I never do it because <laughs> I'm very stubborn and will repeatedly hit my head against the brick wall until the brick wall falls. Okay, Michael, what were you going to say? I, I actually really enjoy casual modes. Like, when I was playing through Mass Effect 1 again, I started playing through it on normal, and uh, I got to a pirate base, which are really, really difficult on any difficulty. And I was stuck behind a wall for what felt like an hour, and I'm just like, I need to turn this down to casual to actually beat the game. Yeah, Mass Effect 1 will do that to you. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I thing, agree. I'm going to go through, like, Dark Souls is, like, I'm not going to play through Dark Souls because I don't want to throw my head against the wall that is Dark Souls. See, so, I actually have something to say about that. Um, your head feels great after Dark Souls, man. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, the thing about Dark Souls is that the difficulty is part of the narrative, and if you take away the difficulty, I don't think the game says the same thing anymore. I agree. It, so, it would be a totally different experience if it was easy. It's, I am, I'm absolutely a supporter of casual mode. I'm not a supporter of casual mode in Dark Souls. Um, because, I mean, I think they, I mean, there's, there are ways to make Dark Souls easier, like using magic and things like that. But magic I'm not magic get, is the easy mode, yeah. I'm not going to get into that too much. But um, it definitely would not say the same thing. It's a design decision to put a casual mode in. And I think it's an important one that should not be like, it shouldn't be obvious to use one or not to use one. You right. actually need to put thought into it. But yeah, just sort of uh, wrapping that up, Dragon Age, difficult game, very engaging and rewarding game as well. Um, I think that's going to do it for this week. I'm Amid Meon. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.